Quick note that the following episode of Canada Land may contain subject matter and language that some people will find offensive. Barack Obama spearheaded the setting up of a dangerous bioweapons lab in Ukraine. Here's another one. Putin seemingly plans to rebuild most of eastern Ukraine. Here's another one. The facts are there. Power in Ukraine is indeed occupied by a gang of drug addicts. This stuff is all over the internet. Disinformation about the war in Ukraine has been running rampant since the Russian invasion began and even before. Social media was flooded with false information about Russia, Ukraine, Obama, bioweapons. The list goes on and on. And we can and should blame the bad actors for this, of course. There's copious research studies uh, tracing back large amounts of this disinformation to Russia and China. Some of those stories can be traced right back to those states, but they reach the public through the guise of legitimate-looking websites, which distribute them all around the world. So yeah, blame those governments, blame those websites. But there is an underlying force that fuels all of that disinformation, that supports it, and that monetizes it. And we don't talk about it at all, largely because it's sort of invisible. It's built with a set of automated processes, algorithms. Decisions often get made through artificial intelligence. It can be difficult to figure out who a story about this would be about. But this thing that I'm describing here, it is what creates the financial incentive for disinformation and misinformation. And what I'm talking about, of course, are digital advertisements. It's time for us to take a close look at them. Our reporter, Cherie Sutrin, will explain. Wait for it. first time I noticed the connection between ads and disinformation was because of a Twitter fight featuring Antifa and dirty toilets. I was scrolling through Twitter one day, and I stumbled across a screenshot of an article from the Post Millennial. The article claimed that a woman named Nandini Jemi was, quote, an Antifa-loving activist and that she wanted milder punishments for convicted sex offenders. And on the page right below the article, was this banner ad. It was a prominent photo of a very dirty toilet, encouraging you to click to find out more about how to get your toilet sparkling. Nandini Jeremy herself was the one who tweeted the image. The post-millennials got the shittiest possible ads, literally, she wrote. Of course, I had to find out what this is all about. Yeah, that's an interesting way for you to find me, huh? <laughs> this article wasn't a one-off. The post-millennial has written extensively about Jammy. Starting in November 2021, a series of articles have said that Jammy is a deranged activist, that she attacked a Jewish journalist, and that her business partner was trying to buy inappropriate material for minors. I mean, they've called us everything under the sun at this point. Now, the post-millennial lists itself as a news and investigative journalism website. They have an editor-in-chief, a roster of writers a page about journalistic standards. But many critics say that the site encourages hate and spreads disinformation. 
they've been criticized for publishing false claims about the COVID-19 pandemic, negative portrayals of immigrants, and the LGBTQ community. So I wondered what Jamie could have done to incite their vitriol. Turns out that just two days before that first article, Jamie had been on a mission of her own. She had started alerting companies to the fact that their ads were on the Post Millennials website. So around September or so, I started to tweet at companies, advertisers, and ad exchanges to let them know that they were advertising on the Post Millennial. Companies like Equinox, an upscale gym. Life. Live like it's art. Or Bombas, which makes socks. Socks shouldn't have an annoying seam. Fixed. Socks shouldn't fall down. Fixed. Socks should provide support where you need it most. Fixed. And these companies, well, they didn't seem to know their ads were there in the first place. And once they found out, they pulled them. So I've been fighting disinformation for five years now by going straight to what I consider the source or what we consider the source of their funding, which is ad revenues. Several major advertising platforms had already started to delist the post-millennial, taking their ads off the website, saying that the website had violated their content policies as the reason why. As the post-millennial lost advertisers, Nandini Jamie began to believe that this was the way toward defunding the post-millennial. In fact, she thinks that this is the key to defunding online hate and disinformation altogether. Basically, the way that works is I tweet at the companies with screenshots of content on the post-millennial along with their display ad, which shows up right next to it. And when they see that, you know, usually their immediate response, their team comes back to us and says, you know, we had no intention of placing our ads on a website like this. We don't support hate or hate speech or bigotry. We will be blocking our ads moving forward. Nandini partnered with Claire Atkin, and together they co-founded a nonprofit consulting agency. My name is Claire Atkin, and I am a co-founder of Check My Ads. Which helps brands figure out where their ads are being posted. We are in a disinformation crisis, and there are certain publishers on the internet who are making wild amounts of money thanks to the advertising industry as it stands currently. Right now, the advertising industry is a $400 billion industry, and the money in it is controlled by a very small handful of ad tech exchanges, ad tech companies, whatever you want to call them. They are choosing to send ads to certain places and choosing to not send ads to others. And every single one of these companies has some kind of standard that they adhere to for what they call their inventory, basically the publishers who they work with. And they say to advertisers, here, buy the publishers who are in our inventory because our publishers are the best publishers. And we will make sure to keep your brand safe by making sure that none of the publishers who we put your ads on will promote violence, will promote xenophobia, will promote transphobia. We will make sure to stay away from anything that is disinformation and hate speech. But they're not doing that. So that's the problem that we see today Disinformation and hate speech is incredibly profitable. Jamie and Atkins say that their method of delisting ads can help dismantle the disinformation economy. And it looks like at least some companies are on board. But how much do ads really matter to a disinformation website's total revenue? 
can limiting ads really change anything at all? As it turns out, Jeremy and Atkin already have an answer to that. In 2017, Jeremy was part of an activist group called Sleeping Giants. They went after the monetization of the right-wing American website Breitbart. Breitbart was created in part by Steve Bannon, the chief strategist for former U.S. President Donald Trump. And in the run-up to the 2016 presidential election, the website, and Bannon himself, rose to prominence as outspoken Trump supporters. The site, which claimed to be a news website, was rife with mis- and disinformation, and peddled in hate toward minorities, fake news about the dangers of immigration, climate change denial, that sort of thing. What Sleeping Giants did was what Jamie and Atkin are now doing with the post-millennial. They screenshot the ads they saw up and tweeted those images at the companies supplying the ads, letting them know what was happening. Companies like Audi, Ethan Allen, and Lyft all pulled out of Breitbart. And it worked. Breitbart lost a lot of money. In July 2018, Steve Bannon was filmed for a documentary called The Brink. At a dinner with some European businessmen, he was heard discussing the financial losses Breitbart felt after sleeping giants came after them. We were going to make like $8 million of free cash flow that year. After we won, um, this group called Sleeping Giants, a group of tech executives, they, they literally stripped out, they went to the 35 exchanges that sell the ads, 31 went away. So the ad revenues dropped like 90%. Sleeping Giants, they attacked us too. On like the Twitter. Yeah. See, they go like, you know you're doing advertising on this site? Yeah. Take it down. They screamed they, they did, yeah. And eventually Google um, banned us from um, the ad network. All the right-wing media, the top 10 companies, by the end of the year, except for Fox, will be donor-based. You'll have to have a donor come in and write a check. There's no economic model. Not only that, but researchers are now making connections between ad funding and Russian disinformation about Ukraine. But maybe it's good for us to backtrack a bit here and look at how we ended up in this mess where companies can't even know where their ads end up or what they're funding. To answer that, you have to go back and look at the history of the early internet. I got in touch with Augustin Fu in New York. He spent over 25 years working in the digital marketing industry and has seen the growth of third-party advertising happen in real time. So in the early days, the ads were placed on sites like Yahoo. And essentially it was like a magazine, just a digital form of it. And back then, they would sell the ads, and then advertisers would buy it from them. So that's kind of called direct buying. And then, obviously, you remember the rise of the blogs. So the blogging platforms like Blogger, WordPress, and a few others. And that allowed more people to write content and put it online because they don't need to know HTML. So with that, we've seen a dramatic rise in the number of sites. And it got to a point where... The big advertisers couldn't go to 10,000 small websites and say, can we buy ads from you, right? That just was not practical. So that gave rise to what we call ad exchanges or programmatic ad exchanges. And those are very similar to Wall Street, right? The stock exchange. And the stock exchange just brings together buyers and sellers of shares of stock 
and the programmatic ad exchanges brings together buyers and sellers of ad impressions. Enter the ad exchanges, third-party platforms where companies and website publishers could buy and sell ads at a larger scale and even put up ad slots for bid. As Fu explained, it's these ad exchanges that form the building blocks of the programmatic ad industry. Like a lot of things on the internet, they've become consolidated, with Google being the largest server of ads. There are lots of smaller ad exchanges, but most ads you encounter online are served through Google. So how do bad actors end up able to take part in these exchanges? So as part of the exchange, uh, the advertiser is now kind of buying ads that go onto tens of thousands of sites, not you know one or two sites. Now they're buying from the exchange instead, and those ads can go to tens of thousands of websites. And as you can imagine, it became a lot easier for fraudsters and disinformation actors alike to spin up you know, a dozen sites, a hundred sites, a thousand sites, maybe 10,000 sites, and make them part of an ad exchange. And because they were mixed into tens of thousands of other sites, it was very hard to see. So just like the fraudsters, the disinformation actors have created websites and now they have revenue stream from digital advertising, which they didn't have before. Because imagine if you were a disinformation site and you went to a big advertiser and say, will you buy ads on my site? Right. Obviously, the big advertisers will say, no, we won't do that. But if you're mixed into hundreds of thousands of other sites, the big advertiser simply doesn't know. So their money eventually unknowingly flows to both fraudulent websites as well as disinformation websites. So that's how this came about. If one exchange turns them away, the fraudster or the disinformation actor can go to another exchange. There are a bunch of different types of what Fu describes as fraudsters, but ultimately, that refers to any site that tries to get past an ad exchange's policies of what is allowed on their platform. Often, these fraudsters are fake news sites or sites that promote hate against minority groups. Or they could also be sites that post plagiarized information and articles for the sole purpose of catching ad revenue. Fu says, bad actors are easily able to get past the ad exchange's screening and proliferate disinformation. And it gets even more complicated than that because you can game a site to make it look more legitimate than it actually is. First, websites can list themselves as legitimate news websites when applying for an exchange. They can say that they have journalistic standards when in fact they have none. And then they can make it look like lots and lots of people are coming to this not-so-legitimate website. These days, it's very easy to do that because they can cross-post it to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, other social media. So they have a way to disseminate it and amplify it. Now, even then, if they just depend on the traffic that comes to their site, they might still have low traffic. So what do they do? They go and buy some traffic, right? Basically, it's trivial now to buy bot traffic, right? If you just um, Google the term buy traffic for my website, you'll see hundreds of vendors ready to sell you traffic. So the combination or the intersection between disinformation and ad fraud is now those disinformation websites can also juice their numbers, right? Inflate their traffic by using bots to hit the site. And so they can make a lot more ad revenue because 
the fraud detection companies and the exchanges, they're not really even looking. They're not looking that hard. So it's very easy for them to make more money by inflating or increasing their traffic artificially using bots. As it turns out, it's really easy to make a bogus website and make money off of it. According to a BuzzFeed News investigation, in 2019, there were a pair of fake news websites disguised to look like real local news, one called the Albany Daily News and, for Canadians, the City of Edmonton News. These sites featured copied news content from across the web, including celebrity content unrelated to the cities they supposedly served. And the City of Edmonton News had somehow generated more page views than real news sites like those of the Edmonton Journal and Edmonton Sun. In 2020, CNBC reporter Megan Graham decided to test exactly how easy it would be to monetize a website. So she created a fake website and copied her own CNBC articles onto it to see how long it would take for her to be approved to run ads. She applied to almost three dozen ad tech partners. Google declined on the basis that her site had scraped material. But some approved her right away, and ultimately, three tech companies approved her to monetize her website. And when she began running that ad program, ads for legitimate companies appeared. Kohl's, Wayfair, and Overstock cropped up. And if she continued to run it, she could have started collecting cash from those places. Coming back to Augustin Fu, he says that the fact that this is so easy is the fault of these ad exchanges failing to uphold their own standards. So, yes, there are these policies and, you know, the companies will, quote unquote, say they've done their job. So some of these policies are, oh, you know, you can't do hate speech. You can't have nudity. You can't have all this and this and this. Right. You're not supposed to commit fraud either. But basically it happens all day long. And those policies are not enforced strictly enough. And so the bad guys, you know, they'll just basically do it for as long as they can before they get caught. And once they get caught, they just spin up 10 more websites and continue. So, you know, this kind of escalating uh, arms race, uh, the good guys will always be at a disadvantage because the, the bad guys can innovate faster. They can move faster, right? They don't play by the rules. So when Breitbart was blocked in 2016 because Sleeping Giants outed them, people started adding Breitbart.com to their block list. If Breitbart put in Breitbart.com, nobody would bid on it because that domain was already blocked. So they have an incentive to lie and Breitbart will pretend to be MarthaStewart.com or TravelAndLeisure.com, right? That's called domain spoofing. Now, even that is being caught a little bit better because in those cases, if they lied about the domain, but the seller ID is still theirs, um, you know, if someone looked, they would find that mismatch and then say, oh, well, the money's still flowing back to Breitbart. So then they would actually shut down that seller ID. So then the next step is Breitbart partnering with somebody else uh, in a dark pool. So now that is starting to occur a lot more because that's a way for them to pool their inventory into things that are kind of shady and you really can't see where the money's going. Braden Vickers is a software developer based in Singapore. And from his research that he's done into this topic, he's found that some of these misinformation sites are now linked to other, more innocuous sites, which provide another possible source of revenue. 
the post-millennial, for example, is connected to another site called Woe Canada. Woe Canada is populated by listicles about the best Canadian animals or the top tourist sites. It's all very light and neutral, very much unlike the type of content on the post-millennial. You can see pretty clearly in the data that I look at with uh, well-known. Uh, so there's uh, a lot of overlap in the site and the ad accounts used by the post-millennial and uh, another site called Woe Canada, which yeah, doesn't post the same disinformation and hate speech necessarily uh, or that type of thing, but has a lot of ad funding from accounts that are supposedly owned by the post-millennial. And so, yeah, there's speculation that that is one is being used to fund the other. But major ad aggregator platforms are working to address these problems. I reached out to Google Canada, and in an email response, they said, quote, We have strict ads policies and publisher policies that govern the types of ads and advertisers we allow on our platform. Those policies prohibit content that makes unreliable claims, such as content that could undermine trust in a democratic process, harmful health claims, and content that denies the existence of climate change. But to enforce those policies, they said that they used, quote, a mix of automated systems and human review. They said that they can disable ads on specific pages or remove ads from a site entirely. Google said that in 2020, they took action against more than 1.3 billion publisher pages and have removed ads from several prominent right-wing websites, including Gateway Pundit, Bongino Reports, and My Militia. Google, as well as many ad exchanges, have started relying on AI technology to help them determine if a site is safe or not for their ads. This allowed the ad aggregators to promise companies that their brands would be protected, that their logos would stop getting pasted on fake news sites. Sounds good, right? Well, the problem is that it didn't really work as expected. Here's Claire Atkin and Nandini Jemmy from the nonprofit Check My Ads again. There are two types of technologies that the brand safety industry leans on in order to keep your ads away from things that promote violence, things that promote hate or even drugs, things that advertisers don't want to fund. The first and simplest technology is called keyword blocking. So it works by putting a list of keywords up and saying anytime this keyword is in a URL, basically the name of an article, don't put the ad there, block it. The second technology that they use is called semantic analysis, and I'll let Nandini explain that. They call it semantic analysis. They call it contextual intelligence. They have all kinds of, of proprietary uh, terms for this. Essentially, what they claim they can do is scan a page as if you were a real person, as if uh, a real person was reading it, and be able to tell what the topic of the page is, what the tone of the page is, and what it makes you feel as a human being. And they have a term for that. It's called sentiment analysis. So they say that they're able to figure out whether this article that you're reading makes you feel positive, negative, or neutral, which is as dumb as it sounds, right? Because different people feel different way about articles. Like, who are they basing this off of? Who is this Wait, so this, this technology can, like, look at a news website and just decide if it's, like, depressing or not? That's what they claim. That's exactly what they claim. And one of these companies, Integral Ad Science, they, for a hot second, about two years ago, 
in 2020, they released a demo of this product and you bet Claire and I were on it. (laughs) And what we did, we quickly threw in some news articles about Black Lives Matter, like actual news coverage of Black Lives Matter. And we also threw in articles from white nationalist websites. One of them was American Renaissance. Uh, Another was Liberty Hangouts. And so what the demo spit out was all the articles about Black Lives Matter, like the news, critical news, local news coverage of Black Lives Matter was marked as a negative sentiment. And all the stuff that was literally put out by a white nationalist was either neutral or positive. So basically this technology isn't as smart as they want it to sound, I mean, or as smart as they promote it to be. And Nandini and I have found over the years that this brand safety industry is not helping keep ads away from hate speech and disinformation. It's actually just defunding the news. In April, 2020, The Guardian reported that UK newspapers could lose over 50 million pounds in revenues because of advertisers blocking words related to the coronavirus pandemic. That's right. These brand safety technologies were diverting ads away from news sites that covered the pandemic. A spokesperson for Newsworks, an organization representing the UK newspaper industry, told The Guardian that the lists were threatening our ability to fund quality journalism. And the impacts were seen in North America, too. In March 2020, Craig Silverman published an investigation for BuzzFeed that found that at least one major brand had been pulling their advertising from digital news sites, including Global News, by blocking words related to the pandemic. He reported that while readership soared, ad revenues were plummeting. In April 2020, Post Media, Canada's largest newspaper publisher, held a virtual town hall for its employees at which the company described how ad blocking was affecting them. Tape from that meeting was leaked to Candleland. This is Lucinda Chowden, who at the time was the company's senior VP of editorial and editor-in-chief of the Montreal Gazette. Disappointingly, at the same time as audiences are looking at our work more than ever before, we are unable to monetize that work. Even though we have more users, more page views than we have seen in the past, a lot of advertisers online don't want their content, their ads associated with content that deals with disease and death. So there's an algorithm that is shifting people away from anything that has uh, COVID in the URL. As a consequence, record numbers of users and page views have coincided with a significant drop in revenue. But the pandemic wasn't the only newsworthy topic being blocked. Vice News has reported on keyword blocking around terms related to the Black Lives Matter protests. Keyword blocking became especially obvious when, on March 7, 2020, A company which was advertising on the New York Times website ended up pulling their ads, leaving a large banner right at the top of the homepage completely blank. And speaking of the New York Times, a researcher named Christoph Franizek, who runs a blog called Adalytics, has looked at how specific, well-known journalists are more likely to have content marked as unsafe. That list included two Times journalists, Nicholas Kristof and Jen Ransom, who had 65% or more of their content marked unsafe by the brand safety technology used by some ad tech platforms. 
I really wanted to find out more about how the news industry was dealing with this type of blocking, how much it was impacting revenue, and if editors ever had to make a choice about what content to publish based on these metrics. I asked the major Canadian news outlets about it, but unfortunately, not a single one wanted to talk. But in the UK, the conversation around keyword blocking is not nearly as secretive. And a recent campaign led by Newsworks is pushing for the ad industry to stop blocking around words related to climate change, saying that it could prevent the funding of much-needed information on the topic. Atkin says there's just no way this brand safety technology can ever work. You can't automate your way to brand safety, and that's because it takes a human to understand when something is published in bad faith. And what we're talking about when we talk about disinformation is most of the time, the bad faith publication of content to do with sensitive social issues. It is usually content that scapegoats a minority group. And that's why when we're talking about this stuff, we say over and over again, this is not a conversation about politics. This is a conversation about disinformation versus journalistic standards. This conversation about brand safety, programmatic ads, and the defunding of news has been happening for the past couple of years within the ad industry. But now there is an even more urgent problem, the monetization of disinformation about the war in Ukraine. Starting in March, the Global Disinformation Index began highlighting the ads that appeared right next to harmful and dangerous articles. Ads for Adobe Canva appeared on a fake news site discussing the conspiracy theory, believed to have started in Russia, that Ukraine has been conducting bioweapons research. Ads for the BBC can be found on a page about the denazifying of Ukraine, the reason Russia has cited for the invasion. And on a website called the Conservative Treehouse, there was an article about Russian President Vladimir Putin wanting to rebuild Ukraine with a big banner at the top for the International Rescue Committee, a humanitarian aid organization. Google has responded to this and says it is working to address the problem of Ukraine disinformation being monetized. As of February 26th, the company has paused monetization of Russian Federation state-funded media. And then a month later, they pause monetization of content that exploits, dismisses, or condones the war in Ukraine. And so long as they're doing that, it's a step in the right direction. Right? They didn't. They just said they did. Just before this interview, I made sure to go to mail.ru, just to the homepage. It's mail.ru. And right at the top, I see an ad for Oak and Luna and when I go to the information button, it says something in Russian and then Google, which means the ad is supplied by Google. We're seeing them on mail.ru. We're seeing them on TASS. This is Russian-owned media outlets who are accusing Ukrainians of being Nazis and justifying the invasion of Ukraine as a unification effort of Russia. And they are lying to the Russian people and lying to the world about what is happening. And American and Canadian companies are funding this. And they're funding it against their interests, against their knowledge. And they're doing it because Google has basically forced them to do that. Claire Atkin isn't the only one who noticed that Google's claims of pulling their ads from Russia don't pass the smell test. 
Danny Rogers, executive director of the Global Disinformation Index, told me that they've been trying to bring attention to this problem for years. Whether it's, you know, official stuff out of the Kremlin or semi-official stuff out of the Kremlin or you know, stuff around the world uh, that is highly influenced or aligned with Kremlin talking points, you know, has been monetized for a long time. You know, just sort of egregious examples of things like, you know, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs ads running on TOS.com, which if you think about the, the money flow is, you know, U.S. government money going into the Google machine, coming out of the Google machine and going into the Kremlin's bank accounts, right? And so what we're seeing now is just a huge explosion of content in that category. And he blames this problem squarely on Google and the major ad platforms. They have to do everything that they can, not only kind of from a sort of ideological perspective, like not you know, participate in this war, but also to protect their own customers, even from a very sort of parochial consideration, like their own customers want this. And there's frankly no reason that they shouldn't provide it. When a company that's building quantum computers and autonomous cars and launching satellites, like says they're, they're trying their best and it's still not happening, it, 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 it doesn't strike me as genuine. I asked Google about this mentioning specific sites that were flagged by Check My Ads and GDI. Lauren Skelly, spokesperson for Google, said in an email response that the company was closely monitoring the situation in Ukraine and Russia. She said that the specific sites I mentioned were part of a larger group that was under review, and they will be taking action if they don't meet Google's policies. But bringing this story full circle... Skelly also said that Google had previously taken action against the post-millennial for specific pages that were in violation of their policies. So how can we push against this never-ending tide of fake sites, bad actors, and disinformation? Well, Jamie and Atkin are taking it one side at a time. So the thing with contacting advertisers is that when you talk to advertisers, if I were to notify advertisers one at a time about their ads appearing on disinformation sites, I will be working through the end of time and then my ghost will continue working <laughs> for several lifetimes. Chad Loader, a computer software developer who has been working with Jamie to better understand how programmatic ads work, has been quietly tracking the ad exchanges that have delisted the post-millennial from their platforms. And in an ongoing Twitter thread, he has noted over 20 platforms and ad exchanges from which the post-millennial has been delisted. And the post-millennial is well aware of what is happening. They've said so themselves in the stories they published about Jamie, saying she is attempting to de-platform sites that she disagrees with, calling her a cancel culture crusader. I have reached out to the post-millennial multiple times, seeking comment on their attacks on Jamie, as well as their claims that she was trying to defund them. Libby Emmons, editor-in-chief of the Postmillennial, declined an interview, but said, quote, We stand by our reporting, and we will not be silenced by Nandini Jamie's crowdsourced intimidation against our journalists. Jamie has a different take. The status of the Postmillennial is that their biggest source of ad revenue today is Google, Google is still monetizing and serving the post-millennial, even though it violates their publisher policy. One of the things that we've noticed about the post-millennial and the way that disinformation in general works is that these guys are always helping each other out. 
So one thing that I noticed after, I mean, there was, there was a few days where, <laughs> where the post-millennial had a lot of empty spots, a, a lot of empty ad slots on their website. And then I noticed that one of them was filled by a new widget called Hotwire. It's a widget of articles from another outlet called The Daily Wire. And so what I think happened is that The Daily Wire saw an opportunity to finance the post-millennial. That's one thing. And the other thing is to introduce their own content and rhetoric to a welcoming audience. That benefits both of them. That's a synergistic relationship. It allows the post-millennial to make some money and it allows The Daily Wire to reach new audiences and new eyeballs. So I think what we're going to see is more of this, you know, one thing that these disinformation outlets and the people who work at them do really well is they go on each other's shows and podcasts and write for each other's websites and they're constantly cross promoting each other. So what I suspect is going to happen is that in some way, these outlets will continue to develop financial relationships with each other and keep each other afloat that way. I mean, if you could estimate, how much money do you think the post-millennial has lost so far because of you taking ads off of their website? We really don't know. Like, the best way to answer that question is to extrapolate. You know, Breitbart was a huge website. They were going to make $8 million in 2017. They lost 90% of it when they lost 31 of 34 of their ad exchanges. When the Gateway Pundit lost Google ads, they were going to make $1.1 million from Google ads, and they lost that. The ad tech world is non-transparent, so it's very hard to say. But we do see materially that the ads start to look worse, that they complain a lot more. They don't expand as fast or at all. And we know that our work has an impact because they are doing everything they can to slander us. So an outlet like the Post Millennial, as far as we know, has backing from some very wealthy donors. I don't think that we're going to be able to change that. I think they'll be okay, but they're not going to have a business model anymore. They're not going to be earning ad revenues and they won't have the legitimacy of national advertisers on their website. In a story that started with an ad about dirty toilets, I wondered what the post-millennials' ads look like these days. So I clicked on their latest story about how the Washington Post plans to, quote, dox libs of TikTok. There are two ads up. One for MyPillow, a company whose CEO had been one of the leading proponents of false claims that the last U.S. election was stolen. And then the other ad was a Google-generated ad encouraging users to subscribe to The Globe and Mail. That is your Canada Land show. You can email me. I'm at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything you send me. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Our website is at canadaland.com. This episode was reported by Cherie Sutrin with production help from Jonathan Goldsby and Tristan Capicione, our audio editor and technical producer. Our senior producer is Sarah Larniuk. Kieran Oudshorn is our managing editor. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndications handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca.
Hi there. You just heard Canada Land, the show where I'm typically joined by a different guest each week for a long feature interview. What you're going to hear next is Canada Land Shortcuts, a topical news show where I'm joined by a different co-host each week and we talk about the media's coverage of various stories in the news right now. Wait for it. Jen Gerson, co-founder of The Line, freelance journalist, former Canada Land host. All-around troublemaker, despised by thousands. Jen, today on the show, the irresistible charm of Pierre Polyev. And boy, is it ever irresistible. We'll try to resist. Welcome back to Shortcuts, Jen, where we talk about the news. Cool. Five thousand in Edmonton. Wow! Six thousand in Calgary. Fifteen hundred in Vancouver. A thousand plus in Windsor, Ottawa, and other Ontario communities. All there to see Ontario MP Pierre Poilievre. Thank you, thank you. Hundreds turning out to hear his populist message. Promising things like axing the carbon tax and ending all COVID restrictions. If you've been introduced to Polyev through news clips over the past year, you know him as an attack dog. Who exactly is Pierre Polyev? Jen, how would you describe how Pierre Polyev looks? Well, his nickname's Skippy. <laughs> and uh, he comes across as the type of guy who was really into politics at 17, passionately joined the local like conservative um, youth league in order to debate, and then just never really grew out of that persona. That's very apt. He, he looks like a student council conservative. Yes, yeah, student council conservative. Yeah, that's right. Like trying to play grown up. Like, mm -hmm. But that's still like a reference point for people like with a certain political context. Like, how would you describe how he looks? He looks like he should be helping Principal Rooney collect evidence against Ferris Bueller. <laughs> Pierre Polyev looks like he should be trying to cleanse the Reich of swing dancing. Ooh, plan a fire on that one. All right. Pierre Polyev looks like he should be foreclosing on Adam Sandler's grandma's house. <laughs> Pierre Polyev looks like Peter Parker in an alternate Spider-Verse where Peter Parker accidentally kills Uncle Ben and becomes Dr. Octopus instead of Spider-Man and then is killed himself by Peter Parker. Elaborate. Elaborate. He's just brutally uncharismatic. Like, he is spectacularly unlikable. Oh, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. I mean, like, he's, he's attracting more people to his leadership rallies than I think most political observers have ever seen attracted to a leadership rally. So obviously there's something remarkably charismatic and likable about the guy, just not to you or anyone listening to this podcast. Well, I think a lot of different people listen to this podcast, and I will admit that he does have this kind of reverse appeal, this sort of anti-charisma. It's strange, Jen, for a politician to seem to be so indifferent to whether or not they're likable. Like, it's kind of unique that he's not pandering, he's not preening, he's not solicitous. He doesn't seem needy. He doesn't, like, he, he's just like, meh, this is who, like, I'm, I'm Pierre Polyev. I'm going to poke you with this hot stick again and again and again. How many emergency response benefit checks have been sent to people whose applications have been flagged as fraudulent? How many? How many? He's now claiming that all 7.7 .7 million? That's crazy. 
the department is reported to have given out 200,000. So is the number 200,000 the correct number of checks that have been sent out to people whose applications have been red flagged as fraudulent? Yes or no? CBC is saying that prisoners are receiving the check. They can't have lost their job. They were already in prison. Simple question. How many prisoners have received the checks? And there's something like kind of compelling or refreshing about somebody who just does not seem to be... Yeah, it's almost like he is consciously the anti-Trudeau. I think you nailed it. Like he first kind of struck me as somebody who I might have underestimated during the Wee scandal when he went head to head with Trudeau at committee. Let's hear a little bit of that. Highlight. Well, then tell my me what mother, it is. Uh, my mother How much? Has, uh, has just the dollar through, figure. Uh, throughout her life. The dollar uh, figure, Prime various Minister. various ways and is uh, proud How much? of the work that she's done. And I'm proud of her How herself. much? Uh, I'm looking for can, a dollar figure. Can... How much? Answer the question. Yes or no? Yes or no, Mr. Prime Minister? Yes or no? He's done that on a number of occasions, and it's almost like this prosecutorial cross-examination. It's almost like a journalist's work, except like the questions are very loaded and he often will choose a question that puts government in an impossible position, like, how many fraudsters are you paying CERB money to? I want the number. You know, like, the number exists. There is some number greater than zero, but of course they don't have that number. It's always a little bit silly, because it's like, you're hiding something. It's like, well, we actually don't have, like, why would we have that specific number? But it's, I don't know, it's effective political theater. The other one that I would say is highly effective political theaters when he basically uh, took a strip off of Kearney. Well, go try to give that answer back in Alberta because I grew up there I too, and I can tell you the people. I, yeah. yeah, I can tell you the people of Alberta you, would be what, ashamed that, with the answer you just gave. That you uh, would give billions, not, no, of dollars, that, billions of dollars, billions of dollars to foreign pipelines Collier, while to, uh, not allowing Canadians to build pipelines so, here at home. Uh, that is the kind are, of elite Davos hypocrisy. Could I, could I please, Madam Chair? This is really unbecoming of a member to badger any witness. This is really, truly unacceptable. This is when there was a lot of rumor that Carney was going to be making a play for uh, a seat and or potentially a leadership to um, upend Trudeau before the last election. And he appeared before committee and like Pierre just basically tore him apart, just destroyed him. And like shortly after that, (laughs) Carney was like, yeah, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna get back into politics. (laughs) (laughs) He's effective at what he does. He's effective at finding the heart of any particular issue and absolutely poking it until it bleeds. And I think that after several years of kind of bumbling, visionless, conservative leadership, there is definitely a base within the party that is perfectly happy to just pick an absolute asshole who they think can win. Now... That's where this takes us. It's like you've got a guy who plays to the base and he's just like he's the pricky one on your side. He's not your charismatic leader. But that all changed because I think that the guy is really smart. And I think that a very difficult thing in Canadian conservative politics. And again, this is area an area where you'll be able to correct me if I got this wrong. I got a general sense of it, which is that like that which works within the party is not enough. Like, you've got to find a way to tap into something greater and beyond the party. But if you're not careful about that, and if you're too populist, you'll get your hands burned. You're falling into the trap of a lot of people who assume that the Conservative Party is one uniform, monolithic thing that believes a thing, that the base is one thing. The people right now who I think are most opposed to Polyev aren't necessarily the people outside the party who are looking at this guy's rise. The people who are most concerned about Polyev's rise right now are a lot of people within the Conservative Party who desperately fear that the rise of this populist wing is going to essentially destroy the party from within 
and going to give power to this whole faction that they can't now control or necessarily use to useful governing ends. I think he gave comfort to aspects of the base, you know, like he may be a prick, but he's our prick being the, you know, like a good guy to have on your corner. That doesn't make him a leader who's going to have like wider appeal. And he needed to make some kind of a shift and shift his image. And he did something kind of audacious that I think a lot of conservatives were afraid to do. He broke rank with his party's leader and he embraced the trucker convoy. Yeah. This is a rally for truckers, but it's also a rally for the 60% of Canadians who say they worry they can't afford food. It's for the 60-year-old small businessman who spent his entire adult life building up an enterprise and watching it wiped out. It's for the depressed 14-year-old who's been locked out of school. Freedom, not fear. Truckers, not Trudeau. Jen, that was the moment where I thought this guy... He's gunning to take the head off of his own leader, and he's probably going to be the next leader of the party. Yeah, and he might very well be the next leader of the country at this rate. It's a very hard thing that I think he may have succeeded in, which is like, how do you harness the populist power of that Freedom Convoy movement without burning your hands on a swastika? Yeah, and this has always been the problem with populism. And again, here I'm going to force you to be less than shallow. This has been a debate within the Conservative Party for 20, 30 years. Traditionally, within the conservative ranks, you had like the Preston Manning types who always believed that populism was a vital energy for conservative parties and that there's a deep democratic sort of political new there that mainstream conservative parties needed to be able to connect with and tap into in order to maintain their relevance to Canadians. And to Preston Manning's credit, you know, this was a man who came from nowhere and basically built an actual political party. And then on the flip side of that, you had the Stephen Harper wing of the party who was like, yeah, no, because like that can also eat you. You get eaten by the dragon you ride in on. And, you know, to actually masterfully tap that populist energy and then channel it into mainstream political functions is incredibly difficult and you can very easily lose control over your party if you can't do that effectively. I mean, if you want to talk about a leader who's struggling with that very issue right now, I would look at Jason Kenney in Alberta, you know, who came into Alberta. We're going to kick the socialists out. The socialists are responsible for all of your economic woes. I'm going to go drive around the province in a giant blue pickup truck to show how what, how much I'm one of you. You know, two years later, this guy is barely struggling to hold on to his, his own leadership because he wasn't populist enough with a lot of the anti-COVID type people, type measures with his own base and, and, and is now very likely looking at a, a leadership review in which he's going to barely scrape by if he scrapes by at all, and will probably lose the next election as a result of it. Harper made it work because he managed to absolutely clamp down on the crazies in his party and demand just total decentralized control within it. No leader of the conservative party has been able to um, follow in Harper's path ever since. You know, it might be about principle, about certain conservatives saying, you know, like, we don't want to win that way and you'll lose your soul if you fire with the devil's bullets. Or it just might be the establishment. Uh, you know, Jean Charest, I can't quite tell when he like lectures Evan Solomon about how Polyev's embrace of the trucker should be disqualifying. Is this his morals and his soul, or is this just him saying, like, this is just a bridge too far? We can't have these yahoos in our party. No, 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 no. He no. says he supports oh, freedom. Excuse, excuse me. I mean, d d were you mistaken? I mean, he actually didn't support the blockade. What you saw, what he did was... He was, was out there, he was out no, there with he, the truckers. You, you sound like you drank the Kool-Aid here. And if you say to Canadians, I want to be the leader of the Conservative Party, and I want to be the chief legislator of the country, but I don't have to obey the laws, I'm sorry. 
that's not just a failure in leadership, it disqualifies you. But I do think that there is like the Harper connection, and that's who I think Pierre learned under. It's about building that tent, and can you rope in those elements without being co-opted by them? And it's not just about uh, the truckers. You know, a lot of it is about the inroads the conservatives have made with various ethnic communities. So you, I, I'm, I'm watching Pierre's like social media feed and he's, you know, the usual things like reaching out to Sikh communities, reaching out to conservative aspects of the Chinese community, reaching out to the Jewish community. Um, and, and he's really trying here. Shalom and Chag Pesach Sameach. And Jen, he was so close. He got the H on Chag and Sameach, but he called it Pesach. He's trying. He's trying, Jesse. He's trying really hard. There is no path to victory for the Conservative Party if it can't successfully reach out to ethnic communities in this country. That is something that Harper learned. That has been well established. So one of the reasons why the, the, the party lost as badly as it did to Trudeau was because it did embrace the anti-Nakab stuff, the anti-Muslim stuff. It did go down that dark path. It's never been able to regain the trust of some of those communities ever since. That's been a lesson that's actually been well understood and well learned within the Conservative Party. Like, there's no path to victory here if you're a party of white people. He's figuring out more than that. There are more minorities than ethnic communities. He has effectively tapped into bro dudes. And again, I credit this guy with it with a certain amount of brilliance here because there are so many powerful dude bro communities that you could really yourself up with other communities if you go too deep. And so like, what is your angle for tapping into this incredible online political energy? Crypto. <laughs> Crypto. Which is brilliant. If you think it's, it's actually, it's strategically really smart. It's so smart because there's a huge Venn diagram overlap with all kinds of really, really shady philosophies and theories and, and from everything from like hyper-capitalistic, you know, Ayn Rand. And he is just ingratiating himself on a bunch of crypto YouTube channels and crypto podcasts. There's this video of him like smoking a shisha with a guy with a crypto show. Firstly, this is this is ideologically really smart because like you can go to like the anti-government libertarian sort of like, I don't trust Ottawa vibe on the crypto stuff. And also it's tapping into crypto at a moment when crypto's having a moment, right? Crypto is sort of emerging into the mainstream. It also taps into the crypto stuff that happened during the trucker convoy, right? Like a lot of those crypto wallets, when the federal government tried to freeze bank accounts of people who were allegedly involved in some of the trucker convoy stuff, a lot of those crypto wallets just said, no, <laughs> we can't, we, we, we literally can't do that. So, um, I mean, he's going in and saying some economically silly stuff like crypto's a hedge against inflation. I kind of understand what he's trying to say with that, but I mean, it's silly. You're right. I think that most of his take here is strategic, right? He's trying to tap into this youthful dude bro-y kind of energy in a way that isn't tainted with allegations of racism or just extreme misogyny. I want to interrupt you before you explain the blockchain to me, because you wouldn't be the first to try and I, I refuse. Okay. I just hear it as a dog whistle. People vote on very personal and emotional. What he's saying to these guys like, my wife and I, we go to bed watching your crypto YouTube show. You know, like that just speaks to a lot of people. Like this guy who is so hard to relate to, like that guy, that 15 year old on student council was a weirdo. Like, he, like who cares that much about politics at 15? Like it's, that's not a popular guy. And yet he is very skillfully figuring out ways to ingratiate himself to all kinds of different communities. Jen, let's wrap this with the big question, because I do think, unless you feel otherwise, that like Sheree is going to fail in appealing to the, the heart and soul of conservatism and decency. Patrick Brown, same thing, like, come on, that's, that's tainted goods anyhow. I think it's going to be Pierre Polyev 
as the conservative leader, but then he's got to take his brand to a general election. He's got to take his brand to like liberal voters too, and he needs some of them. Can this guy win? I think he can. And the reason why I'm going to say this is because the timing is in his favor. You're going to have this guy going to a general election when people have had X number of years of Trudeau. I mean, bluntly, the fact that Trudeau's won the last two elections is a minor miracle. They're going to be very, very sick of Trudeau. I don't think Trudeau is going to give up power to Freeland or anybody else like that before the next election. I think the governing party is quite stale. So you're going to have this fresh anti-Trudeau face coming up at exactly the moment when people are going to be most sick of the of the Liberal Party and all of its shenanigans. And it has shenanigans. And then I think at the same time, the left is going to make the same mistake that it very often does with politicians that it doesn't like, and that is it's going to overreach. It's not going to go and say, this guy is an absolute unlikable who's playing on your fears of inflation, they're going to go in and they're going to be like, this guy's a racist Nazi. And there will be enough Canadians who have heard that particular tactic before that they're going to roll their eyes. Mm -hmm. And they're going to look at what this guy is actually saying and be like, you know what? I don't like inflation either. They're going to dig up all of his most ugly statements and, and, and positions. Pierre is going to double down on every single one of them, but they're going to overreach in the way that they always do. Well, there you have it, folks. That's Shortcuts for this week. Uh, Jen Gerson, thank you for joining me. Yeah, anytime. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Uh, I can be emailed at jesse at CanadaLand.com. I do read everything that you send. Uh, Jen, where can people find you these days? Oh, well, you know what? You probably would want to go to the Substack, the line. It's theline.substack.com. Or uh, I'm kind of trying to avoid Twitter lately because Twitter's, you know, owned by... Elon Musk, and so therefore must be boycotted at all costs. But I'm technically at uh, at Jen Gerson uh, on Twitter, and that's you know that's that's really the only place I want people getting a hold of me. If you've been missing Jen, she's launched her whole new thing. Uh, check out the line. This episode is produced by Aviva Lasard with additional production by Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. 